Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome back to the Daniel 3 Podcast. It's been a little bit of a hiatus, but it's good to be back with you. And don't have many introductions or updates to give you. I guess, as always, we'll start with the sponsor, Rabbit Eye Blueberry Wine. If Jesus was walking the earth today and turning water into wine, it would, of course, be delicious Rabbit Eye Blueberry Wine, produced by my good friend Will Bell down in Georgia, a fellow Libertarian Party member and Mises Caucus member. Uh, who you've probably seen me talk to a lot on Reed Coverdale's show, Naturalist Capitalist. We haven't done a capitalist communion in a while. I'll have to uh, message Reed and uh, get something in the works there. I miss talking with my my buddies, Liam, Will, and Reed. But yeah, rabbiteyewine.com, support a libertarian small business. And, uh, you know, listen, uh, if you don't like wine, don't worry about it. This stuff is better than any wine you've ever had. I'm not a big wine drinker. I've tried white white wines and red wines, never really my thing, but blueberry wine has kind of become my alcoholic beverage of choice. So yeah, rabbiteyewine.com uh, and uh, they got dry, sweet, anything, you name it, you won't be disappointed. So um, I do apologize that there's not as many podcasts in the Daniel 3 uh, podcast as uh, as there used to be now that I have the podcast with the Libertarian Christian Institute, which if you haven't checked out yet, you can check that out, the new podcast at biblicalanarchypodcast.com. But that is, of course, taking up a lot of my time, and I don't have as much time to schedule shows like this. So, you know, the show is going to be on the back burner for a little while and be more of a, you know, once a month, you know, or maybe twice a month sometimes. And, I, you know, I I apologize for that. I wish I could find more time, but family comes first and having four little ones at home, it, you know, it's a it's it's a full time job on top of the full time job I already have. And then podcasting is like the third half, you know, part time job that eats up a lot of time, too. And who needs to sleep? Right. <laughs> so um, but if you haven't checked out the new podcast, 
definitely give that a um again go to biblicalanarchypodcast.com if you want to support the show you know uh two ways to do it my preference would be honestly to sup- go and support LCI directly, which if you go to the biblicalanarchypodcast.com, there'll be donate links there. There's also donate links on my website, which is daniel318.com. And also, if you want to support my work more directly, patreon.com slash biblicalanarchy, and you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as like, I forget the exact tier amount, $3, $4. It's pretty low. But any way you want to support the show, or if you just want to, you know, give us a review on iTunes, on yeah, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, anything like that. Share on your Facebook, Twitter, any any of that. Give it a like, subscribe. You know, that's enough support, even if that's all you can do. And I appreciate uh, whatever you can do, however you can do it. So that's it. I will stop with all the, you know, shameless grifting that us podcasters have to do. Uh, tonight's guest, I've been listening to his podcast for a little while now, uh, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, and uh, I've listened to an episode Alex did a little while back on the topic of uh, biblical inerrancy and had some thoughts about the conversation he had uh, with that gentleman and so I thought I'd have him on my show and that we could have a conversation about Protestantism, about his journey to libertarianism, and about biblical inerrancy, because I feel like these are conversations that are, you know, I think fun. Just, you know, it's, it's enjoyable to kind of dive deep into our theological presuppositions and, and into different worldviews that we have, and to also explore how those impact our political beliefs and the way that we try to live our lives and do outreach both as Christians trying to reach people with the gospel and as libertarians trying to uh, spread the good news of our Lord and Savior Murray Rothbard as I like to make the joke but uh, I'm going to bring Alex up now and we will introduce him. Alex thanks for joining the show man how you doing tonight? I'm doing great Jacob thanks a lot for having me man I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, no. So I've been listening to your show for a little while now, and I want to give you a chance at the start here just to introduce yourself and plug your show and just give a little, you know, maybe like two or three minute introduction of your background and how you came to libertarianism and what your show kind of focuses on and uh, the kind of content that you create. Yeah. Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity to do that. So I started the Protestant Libertarian podcast back in, I think, April of 2022. And for a long time, I had been reading books, uh, especially on the Bible. And over the last couple of years, I've really gotten into political philosophy and in particular, like libertarian philosophy and Austrian economics. And I realized that there were a lot of connections between those two fields of study. And I'm a teacher, but I teach seventh grade social studies. It's the Middle Ages. It's not the most intellectually satisfying job in the entire world. And I 
I didn't really have an opportunity to dive deep into a lot of these these issues that I was reading about privately on my own. And I had been in ministry for a really long time. I have a degree in biblical studies. So I've always been interested in that. But ever since I stepped down from ministry, there's just not been an outlet to talk about the Bible. So when I started the Protestant Libertarian podcast, it was just going to be basically uh, an excuse for me to collect my thoughts on a lot of issues that I thought were important. I wanted to focus uh, like specifically on biblical studies issues and then uh, on economics and political philosophy. And so the show is kind of like completely random. There are some episodes where uh, a lot of the episodes I try to combine both libertarianism and biblical studies. Uh, but then I have some episodes that are just on libertarian philosophy and economics. And then I have some episodes that are just on biblical studies and theological issues. Uh, and that's one of the great things about having my own podcast is that I'm kind of free to pursue whatever interest I want. And uh, so it's really great. And I'm, I'm thankful I have a, uh, you know enough people that listen to it. And I'm really thankful for my, my listeners and supporters. It's just been a, a really fun ride and I'm, I'm really, uh, really happy to be able to do it. Yeah. I remember my, um, intro into podcasting was a little bit like that too. It was kind of like, I knew there was a lot of overlap and, and connecting lines of thought and, and links between like libertarianism, specifically Austrian economics and Christianity, and I was also I've always been like a big fan of Jordan Peterson, and his uh, his work was actually really impactful on me in terms of my development out of the sort of like political and philosophical left into both not just my libertarian views, but also just becoming a more uh, mature Christian and an adult. And so, um, but I always thought his work kind of tied heavily into praxeolo- praxeology and also into obviously Christianity with his biblical lectures. And so I started my podcast kind of in the same vein of like, I was like, you know, I see all these connections and I need to put the pieces together and talking to people is kind of like one of the great ways to do that. Um, you know, I, I have a background in speech and debate as well in high school. And I always, I love that because like when you, when you do, when you talk with people, whether it's a conversation or a debate or anything, it's ideas clashing. And that's kind of like where you find out where you're weak on something, find out where someone else knows something that you don't. It helps you to reconsider ideas in different lights that you wouldn't if you were just sitting there thinking by yourself a lot. Um, Again, to cite Jordan Peterson, something he said that's always stuck with me is that free speech isn't just the right to criticize government, although it, it is obviously importantly that, but even more metaphysically or philosophically, it is the way that we think. Because, you know, thinking often requires speaking it out loud, putting it out into the world to be to be tested and to be sharpened. It's kind of like iron sharpens iron in the Bible. So, you know, it's it's an enjoyable experience doing podcasting. And I definitely think it's it's helped me grow as a as a Christian, as an intellectual, uh, as a father, you know, everything. So um, so I can relate a lot to your uh, to your experience as you were describing it there. So. Um, so you said you're a social studies teacher and, uh, you're trying to connect all these things. I'm curious, and I I wanted to, you know, start out with a conversation about Protestantism and you specifically chose Protestant as a label that you wanted to ascribe to yourself and kind of be like a focal point. It's in your title. You know, what is, I guess, Protestantism to you and, and why why did you think it was important to, you know, label this podcast and sort of label yourself as a Protestant libertarian? 
Um, and yeah, so what, 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 uh, what yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that's a really good question. I'll kind of start with the, the second half of that question first. So I had no idea that the Libertarian Christian Institute existed before I started the podcast. It wasn't until I bought a book to read specifically for the podcast that I found out about it. And so when I was coming up with the idea for the show, I thought about naming it the Christian Libertarian Podcast. I'm really glad that I did not because that would have been really confusing with uh, LCI and all of the work that they've done. <laughs> so kind of dodged a little bit of a bullet there. But I, um, so I grew up in several different different uh, traditions. I was actually born and baptized Catholic. And uh, my dad's Catholic, my mom's Methodist. Uh, we wound up going to a Methodist church for a couple of years when I was in elementary school. And then all of the formative years of my life, my teenage years, I was in the Lutheran church. And I wound up working in the Lutheran church um, first. And I went to a college, like a restoration movement college. I have friends that are Baptists. Um, and so like, I, I know people from all over the theological uh, spectrum. And I think the one, uh, the one factor that unites all Protestants is the belief in the authority of scripture, that the Bible should be theoretically, at least our only source of authority. Now that doesn't necessarily manifest itself in many Protestant denominations, but in theory, at least <laughs> that's the thing that, that unifies all of us as Protestants. And so with my degree in biblical studies and with my kind of ecumenical background, I don't like, I don't, uh, subscribe myself to any particular uh, denominational tradition right now. Like I, I just, I, I just, I kind of think that Protestant is just a nice general label for somebody that believes that the Bible is authoritative. And, uh, and since I wanted my show to, to lean heavily on kind of the, the biblical studies influences that I've had in my life, I thought the Protestant would be a really good label for that. Just kind of as like a catch all. And I like, there are a lot of people that I know I'm very good friends with a lot of Catholics uh, calling my show, the Protestant libertarian podcast does not mean I'm anti-Catholic. Some of my greatest intellectual influences have been Catholic. Catholic biblical scholars. Um, but it was just a really helpful label to think about uh, my show being a show where I explore the scriptures and then how that relates to libertarian philosophy. And also, um, and also just kind of brings in that idea that the Bible is going to be the center of everything that I do. Also, the the order of that is really important for me. Like I, I'm a Christian before I'm a libertarian. Um, and yeah. like in my journey in life, like I wouldn't be a libertarian if, if I wasn't if it wasn't for my Christian faith. That was a, uh, I think, a way of looking at the world that results from my reading of scripture and my understanding of Jesus as being the king of the entire world. And all of that's based on my belief that the Bible is authoritative and that what is contained in the Bible is true. Um, and so that's why I think that the Protestant libertarian label is a very good descriptor for what I do on the, on the show here. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. And I, 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 uh, I'll definitely agree with you in terms of, um, not, not really ascribing to a particular denomination and, that, that gets and that gets a little bit frustrating because people will ask, you know, what denomination are, are you? And if you say non-denominational, well, that label even seems to be its own denomination nowadays because it just kind of <laughs> yeah. means like, oh, you're just a cringe evangelical. It's like, well, right? No, I don't really want. It's like I don't really like that label either. So it's like I don't know. Can I just be a Christian? Do we have to? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and I. I you know, I, I guess by default I am a, a Protestant, although I don't really like intellectually view myself that way. But I guess it's just kind of like, well, I'm not Catholic and I'm not Eastern Orthodox, <laughs> so it's like right. there's there's not much else you can use to describe it. But there's a lot in, you know, I think most, you know, Christian. Uh, I wouldn't say most in in a lot of the mainstream Christian groupings but catholic eastern orthodox you mentioned you grew up in a lutheran church you know there, there's a lot in these different christian traditions 
in both their theologies and in their just traditions themselves that I can find value in. Um, yeah. But but I just don't find myself compelled to like you know ah this is the one you know what I mean like the Lutheran Church just just has everything right. or mostly everything right or the Catholic Church and papal authority is the way to go and you know ra- rather I I kind of you know I hate to use the analogy of a buffet but it's just more like you know I I want to go after what is true and I don't think any one of them have a whole grasp of what is true but it's sort of like um. It reminds me of the the diamond analogy that William Lane Craig uses to describe the atonement, and it's like I think the the truth of the gospel is is sort of multifaceted, and in a way, each one of these different traditions gleam like they they find a different facet of of truth, and I can f- see what they see and what they emphasize and um and agree with it. Although I think sometimes where these different groups go wrong is that they will sometimes get too focused on just one particular part of theology or the gospel or or tradition and then at you know in in the worst instance instances it becomes to the exclusion of other parts that you yeah. know they might not be as important to them and i think it's okay to be particularly moved by something maybe and have like your own like you know i guess like personal favorite part of the christian experience but it shouldn't be to the diminishment of you know, other truths or other people's experiences, I guess. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And there are two observations that I've made being in like an ecumenical context growing up. The first is that there are people from every single denomination and every single tradition that thinks that their tradition is absolutely the correct one. And they can't all be right. (laughs) So that was one of the first that claim to be the original church. Right. Yeah. Don't you want to be part of the original church going back to the apostles? Like, well, which one? Because Eastern Orthodox say that, and the Catholics say that, and the Lutherans say that. <laughs> right. Yeah, or even <laughs> right, and then we and we can even push that back even further into the. It's like Paul dealt with an, a, a completely different uh, situation in Corinth, in like Corinth, than he did in Philippi. So like those churches were different. Like there's never yeah. the idea that there was like this golden age where all Christians got along and everyone agreed on everything is just a myth. It's not even true in the New Testament, you know. So there's there's that aspect of it too. And then I think you could go into almost any church in the United States on a Sunday morning and pull an average person out of the pew. It doesn't matter if you go into a Catholic church or a Baptist church or a Methodist church. If you sat those people down in a room and grilled them on theology, most of them are going to have no idea what you're talking about because it's yeah. just not, th- those issues are just not a value to them. A lot of people go to church because they have uh, they have a personal relationship with Jesus and they want to be in a community of people that have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I think that that's what's really important. Like my wife and I right now, we're going to a Nazarene church. I didn't know anything about the Nazarenes until we started attending the church, but we love that they teach the Bible at this church and we love that they serve the community and they it's a very healthy church. We have a lot of great friends there. And that's kind of the thing that we're looking for. The denominational labels don't matter for me that much because again, as someone with a background in biblical studies, and I, I change my opinion on theological issues all the time. Like I'm not going to find a church that lines up with my theology because my theology is constantly evolving and changing right. and being refined. And so that that's not, that's not a goal. I want to go, I want a church that, that serves their community and I want a church that tries to be faithful and that's 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 what i'm i think that's the hallmark of authenticity i agree like my church is not shy i wouldn't say they're in your face about it but they're not shy about having a reformed you know slightly calvinist theological bend to them but but they also have a humble approach where it's like you know we have the the majors and the minors and we you know if we agree on the majors that's what matters the most and 
you know, there are people in my congregation that are, are you know, way more of a Arminian bend and, you know, or even have more of a, you know, charismatic, you know, ba- background to them. And then other people that have more of a, you know, traditional background and uh, reformed background. But we're all kind of part of this non-denominational church together. And we try to combine, you know, some aspects of tradition and liturgy, but also some aspects of contemporary styles and you know bible based but also trying to be relevant to what's going on in the world today so it's you know it's it's not stale it's it's always uh i always find my church is 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 fresh and authentic and i think that's the you know it, putting these things in tension it's like tradition is good the scripture is good but the anything can become stale if it becomes right. isolated and and not in in unison with with the rest of the christian experience i think so um definitely agree with a lot of the observations you made there there's also though some things and and you kind of mentioned this you know there's there's some things within protestantism and uh the the western church and the american churches that you know they don't necessarily always do a good job at i guess living up to what the protestant reformation was was about although even that is sort of like (laughs) these days i mean i I just recently finished a book i don't know if you've ever heard of it or read it it's called biblical authority after babel by uh uh what's the guy's name um i forget the guy's name uh but it's it's sort of like uh, uh uh van hooser that's his name so it was sort of like a book that attempted to dive with the criticisms of of Protestantism and people who, you know, especially like you, you'll see a lot of this, like this resurgence in people going to like Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy because the critique is they look at Protestantism and they're like, well, we can draw a direct line from the Protestant Reformation to this rise and secularism that we have in our society today. And Protestants don't have any way to deal with the multiple interpretation problem and it just becomes this tradition of of endless fracturing and infighting and division and i define what truth is for myself i define what the bible says for myself and it just spirals into this sort of like you know pathological uh individualism in a way um where christianity is about me you know and it's it, it's me just me and G, me jesus and my bible and 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 right. that's <laughs> that's the the you know and and i grew up in a lot of that and so and, and i i see a lot of those criticisms and and it's kind of like i kind of they resonate with me and i'm like yeah you got a point yeah. um but i also don't agree with papal authority so i'm stuck here <laughs> so <laughs> right it's uh it's a, a bit of a love-hate relationship but what what are your thoughts on that on on just you know where protestantism is and you know i guess is there anything that is centrally defining to protestantism that that maybe has been lost um or, or you know things to protestantism that that people ha- have forgotten or that people have overemphasized maybe that are causing parts of that to 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 go awry what what are your observations 
Yeah, I, I I completely agree with that analysis, and I, I it, it's a it's a re- it is a really big problem within Protestantism because again, when you say that the Bible is the only source of authority, well, then you're going to have you 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 put t- you put ten people in a room, and you're going to have fifteen different interpretations of what the Bible says. And I think the problem with the Protestant Reformation, especially after Luther and Calvin, is that there was, I think, this move within Protestantism to make doctrine the center of the uh, the direction that the church was headed instead of the Bible, which is all, like we're all we should always be if we're intellectually honest in a conversation with the scriptures, because we're intellectually limited people. We don't have omniscience. We can't understand. Absolutely. So like our views on theological issues and our views on doctrine should change as we read the Bible and as we grow in life and spirit in, in life experience and as we do more study. And I think that there was all always this push. And I think that this is probably a reflection of the late medieval world out of which Protestantism arose, but there was always this push to kind of crystallize or solidify doctrine. So we believe that the Bible is authoritative, but the Bible is going to give us a set of doctrinal propositions. And we have to agree with exactly this set of doctrinal propositions or we're not real Christians. And so then you have other people that come from maybe a different cultural context or that have, uh, like, like you were saying about how denominations have different emphases, maybe they have a slightly different emphases in their uh, reading and interpretation of the scripture. And they're going to say, well, these are the core uh, dogmas or doctrines that we derive from the Bible. And so if you don't believe what we believe, then you're not really a Christian. And this is going to set up all of this infighting and everything like that within Protestantism that we see today. And I think that the only real solution for that is for people to have the intellectual humility to say, I, the Bible is like kind of our North Star, it's our guiding light, but there's no way that we as human beings are ever going to be able to like solve it or figure out absolutely every problem that the Bible is presented with. And so, you know, and kind of going back to one of the things you were saying earlier, this is why I think dialogue and discussion and and debate is so important because I know that I have a very limited perspective and there are people that grow up in different traditions, like you said, that might have emphases that my the traditions that I grew up in did not have. And so there are aspects of um, my faith or my reading of the Bible that I might be lacking that I would learn by talking to somebody else. And so I think that creating an environment where we have those kinds of conversations is a lot more productive than saying, well, this is my interpretation. I was, I was raised in this denomination. This is our statement of faith. And if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. And I also think too, uh, the, one of the reasons why a lot of people gravitate towards Catholicism is because it, it is, I, I've read the Catholic catechism and it's a brilliant philosophical system. And it answers every single question that somebody might have about life and faith and ethics. And I, I definitely understand that desire that people have for there to be some sort of order in the universe. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Catholic tradition is that you can go to a Catholic church anywhere in the world, you're going to get the exact same product, they're going to have the exact same doctrines, they're going to teach the exact same scriptures. And and there's something comforting about that to a lot of people. I just think that the Bible is a lot more complicated uh, than that. And I would never be able to say that one tradition has the truth on on lockdown, if that makes sense. Well, actually, I I think to disagree with you a little bit there. When I did my deep dive into looking into Catholicism, I actually came away surprised with how much, even within the Catholic Church, they don't have everything completely in agreement. You know, you have some, I mean, obviously, like on the majors, they agree, right? You know, the yeah. uh, they, they agree on the saints, on Mary, papal authority, and, you know, the things that make them Catholic, obviously. But But there are, like, different, even within Catholicism, different theological camps and stuff. And um and and different different traditions and whatnot and you know eastern catholicism is much different than western catholicism so right. in which 
wasn't really evidence against Catholicism for me, but it did make me think like, well, the insertation, the inserting just like, well, we interpret the Bible based upon what Rome says, what the Catholic Church says, isn't an answer because they don't even know, like, like other than right. like the very limited amount of things that they consider to be dogmas, which are like, these are like the things you absolutely cannot contest. Like right. most of their theology is kind of still open for for debate in a sense. And so it's like, well, then we didn't really solve the problem. We just kind of like, you know, punted it down the road a little bit and pretended it's not there anymore. And, right, and right. So we, we still have to figure out, like, how do we approach the Bible? What's the correct hermeneutic to to use there? And, and you know, I, my, my worry is with the Catholic Church is that it, as much as I find their tradition to be beautiful— too many people, I think, uh, you know, it become it when it, it's tough because there's there's a part of the Catholic tradition, and I look at people like Bishop um, Barron, and I look at other prominent Catholics in history, and like they are definitely very intellectual, and they they want to keep pushing things. But then I think the a lot of times the average Catholic uh, churchgoer they just kind of start going through the motions and yeah. follow the tradition, follow the routine. And, I, you know, again, I'm generalizing here. Not every Catholic is this way, but I think that's the tendency and the danger of that. Um, and and I, I never want to get to a point where it's like, well, I just got everything figured out. And the answer is right. just trust what the church says. It's like, oh, <laughs> yes, like, yes. That, that, that's to me the, the death of intellectual and theological growth. Uh, if if I were ever to have that kind of outlook, but but then we're still yeah. left with this, you know, uh, battered like corpse of what Protestantism is, and it's like, you know, if if you shall know uh, judge someone by their fruits, it's like the fruits of Protestantism are, you know, kind of kind of gross. Like I don't want to eat that <laughs> if it's a fruit. Um, I don't I don't know. Um, you know, we, we you say we sh I guess. In your answer, you said something along the lines of falling back to, uh, I guess, like biblical authority. I, you know, mm -hmm. the that was kind of similar to the argument that uh, Van Hooser gave in his book that I just read. He kind of said like we just have to go back to like the solas, like we have to kind of like create a sort of like a positive ethos, a positive tradition within because it right now Protestantism is a tradition of of like a negative tradition, the negative of of. Yeah of breaking away of splintering of, of fracturing and negating. And rather we need to have a, a positive ethos that, that unifies. And it was like, you know, unify around, around the solos, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, et cetera. Um, which I, I, I kind of like, you know, it, it makes sense. It's like, but how do we do it? <laughs> and right. I don't, I don't know. And, you know, I, I think there are some parts of the Protestant church that somewhat get along. But then you have others where it's like, you know, they they don't talk to each other and they hate each other right. and it's it's I don't know it's just a mess. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of that comes down to denominational leadership too. And denominations go through these cycles where their leadership will change, and sometimes they'll be more open to ecumenicism, and sometimes they'll be more closed off. And what's unfortunate is if you're a you know if you're a kid that's raised in a church that wants to self segregate from the rest of the Christian community, then you're going to grow up in an environment where you just assume that that's the norm. Um, and so you have a lot of people that are produced by those systems that don't have the ability to be open minded towards other traditions. 
happens. Whereas if you grow up, and this is one of the things that I, I really like about Wesleyanism, although it's it's a double edged sword because the Methodist Church is having all kinds of uh, all kinds of issues yeah. right now. Um, and I worked in the Methodist Church for a couple of years, so I know like like from the inside, I know just how uh, just how much of a double edged sword that is. But one of the things that I've I've really respected about Wesleyanism in general is that they are open to theological change. And people, I think people forget Martin Luther, you know, and he, he, I think he was a great intellectual. He had obviously a lot of shortcomings. He was definitely a product of late medieval Catholicism and a lot of the doctrinal um, conclusions that he came to reflect his upbringing as an Augustinian monk. So all of that's true. But one of the points that Martin Luther made that none of his followers uh, ever seemed to grasp is that he says that the church should always be reforming, that the Reformation wasn't supposed to be this period in history that marked, uh, uh, you know, the end of an age, but it was just, it was supposed to be the beginning of this continual process of examining the scriptures and examining what it meant to be a faithful Christian, given the fact that the world is constantly in a state of change. And I think that had more Protestants early on adopted that mentality of always wanting to reform and keeping the Bible as the, the, the you know, making the Bible the North Star that we're always trying to point to instead of, you know, fighting over these, like, you know, just ridiculous uh, interpretive um, differences between different groups. I think that Protestantism would be in a much better shape had we had we uh, had we start had we started out that way. But you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like the state of the state of the church around the world right now is just a complete train wreck. And I think in America, it's even worse. Yeah, and and I agree. I think I think clinging to the Bible or keeping the Bible as our north star is is the answer, or at least part of the answer. Um, but this leads to the other topic that we kind of wanted to get into, and. You know, you see, like I said, you had that podcast with, um, uh, with a Timothy Price, I think you said mm -hmm. it was, yeah. Um, yeah. on on biblical inerrancy. And you know, when, when I went through my theological journey from the far left to where I'm at now, I wouldn't necessarily categorize it as as right, but it's, I mean, I guess it's somewhat right. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, um, it's a, that, that's that's it, an, it's a weird question for libertarians, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. But it, you know, I, I definitely have like I came from a rebelling against what I grew up in and I kind of went down the progressive Christianity route and I kind of was like well the Bible is just all man written and why do I need to take any of it as as you know being God inspired some of it some of it is but a lot of it probably isn't and you know I, I definitely filtered you know the Bible through my worldview you know it was a lot of eisegesis and uh, you know I've, I've talked about this in the podcast before but if you if anyone really wants to cringe um <laughs> no one's done this yet but someone needs to like actually do this and like post screenshots of it on twitter go go google my name jacob winograd and veganism you will find an old article that young jacob wrote when he was a radical leftist vegan and i did like the worst butcher job of of just like literally like you know, let me take 50 different separate verses across the entire Bible and, and, oh, yeah. you know, sew them together to say why you, if you're a Christian, you should be a vegan. And, oh God, it's just, I go back and read it now and I, I want to like vomit <laughs> because <laughs> of how, how awful my, my, uh, my, the my theology was and my views were, um, not a vegan anymore either. Uh, not, a, and, yeah. Yeah, not, no, not meat, left, meat is, not meat vegan. is delicious. Yes. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God for meat. But, um, you know, when I came out of that, though, and sort of God was working in me, you know, I kind of I researched how we got the Bible. I researched why people believe the Bible is God's word. And, and I became convicted of all that. And when I saw, you know, part of what also influenced me was watching 
just this downward spiral of our culture and people just, you know, like celebrating in their uh, celebrating in their in their sin in their in their uh, depravity. And I, I, I could I, you know, I that seed of the truth that I was raised in, like you just kind of jerked me and went like, hey, everyone around you is just going into this place of utter darkness and you know, that's not right. And so I kind of went like, you know, I fell back to, you know, the, the truth of the Bible, but then, you know, where I ended up was, you know, well, the Bible to be true, like all of it has to be true. And so that's kind of what led me down, you know, the arguments of biblical inerrancy and needing to, you know, believing that for our Christian faith to be, um, I guess like le- legitimate and and something that we can make a a good defense of, which we're called to do. We're called to make a defense. You know, I I need to be able to uh, defend all of Scripture, not just the parts that I that I like. And I need to be able to affirm all of it of God as God's word, and not say like, oh, well, this part's God's word and this one isn't, because then, you know, we already have the problem of interpretation. If we open up the can of worms of, well, this is from God and this isn't. It, it, you know, then then we're really in a place of, you know, uh, I think of uncertainty. But I've encountered a lot of Christian libertarians who don't share my same sense of the necessity to look at the scriptures in that way and, and to use that 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 label or framing of of inerrancy. So, um, you know, I guess like to the, the only the, the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave on, then I'll, I'll give the floor to you to kind of explain your view of things, because um, often people have asked me, well, where in the Bible does the Bible say has to be inerrant? And the passage that comes to mind, um, I have it on my phone here, I should have had it pulled up sooner than now, is, where is it? John 10, and in this, Jesus says, he's responding to the Pharisees, he says that, you know, the scriptures cannot be broken. And I think that that's mainly what I'm after here is that I think that we need to be able to go through all of scripture and there can't be, you know, if, if there's a part of scripture and then we look at another part of scripture and we go, well, these things are in conflict. Or if there's a part of scripture that seems to be in conflict with a scientific truth or a historical truth, we need to be able to, and I'm not saying we should just like be, you know, like, intellectual troglodytes and just be like, well, the Bible's right and you're wrong and just like turn our brains off. I think we need to, okay, this, this is, this is a, a challenge. This is an an intellectual hurdle. Let me do, let me do some studying. Let me do some diving into, you know, the original language this was written in the context. Let me uh, double check these, these other things that seem to be in conflict. And let's, you know, if it's an internal contradiction, it's like, well, we need, if there's an internal contradiction, we need to address our hermeneutic that we're reading this through in order to reconcile it. That's kind of the way I approach it. So I've explained where I come from, what led me to that, why I think inerrancy is important. Um, what are your thoughts on it? And where do you, where would you disagree with that? And where would you say that inerrancy is um, something we don't need or, or detrimental? 
Yeah, so actually, you you set me up for this question perfectly, and I want to say at the outset of this that I agree with almost everything that you said right there, and I also want to make it abundantly clear that for me, there is no greater authority than the scriptures, and I do think that from a historical perspective, the texts that we have in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, are the, the closest that we can get to actually uh, having had been there ourselves, um, and so I have a very high view of the scripture. I have a very traditional uh, interpretation of a lot of the scriptures, and I actually believe that everything in the Bible is true. So my problem with biblical inerrancy is that inerrancy as it is defined by modern evangelicalism has a lot of contemporary biases built into it in terms of understanding what the concept of truth means when it's applied to the scripture. And so I guess the greatest statement on biblical inerrancy goes back to the 1978 Chicago statement that was signed by some really great scholars like Gleason Archer, who has an excellent introduction to the Old Testament that was really helpful for me the first time I read through the Old Testament. And then some other, uh, I wouldn't even call him a scholar, but some other maybe uh, Christian thought leaders like Hal Lindsey, who wrote the late great planet Earth. He was also a signer of that statement on biblical inerrancy. And I agree with uh, quite a few of the propositions that are laid out in the statement on biblical inerrancy. The problem that I have with inerrancy, again, as it's defined by modern evangelicals, is that it claims that the Bible must be historically and scientifically true based on modern conceptions of historicity and science. And so my my issue with inerrancy is that what has happened with uh, what has happened with that concept is that we've projected all of these post enlightenment understandings of historiography and of scientific truth back into the Bible. And we have essentially created this assumption that the Bible needs to answer all of our modern historical and scientific questions. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't answer those questions, then the Bible has some sort of flawed efficiency. And in fact, this is what exactly what the thinkers of the enlightenment, like the Holbach and other figures like that did when they created criticized the Bible as they said, okay, so we have all of these new scientific studies that are based on our Baconian scientific method and, you know, Newton's understanding of the universe being kind of this uh, natural running machine. Uh, the Bible doesn't seem to line up with our modern scientific understandings of the world. And so the Bible must be false. But the problem with that mentality always has been is that the Bible was produced in a cultural context that did not have modern scientific understandings of the natural world. And so we shouldn't we shouldn't expect that the writers of the Bible uh, be answering those kinds of questions because those weren't questions that were being asked in the ancient world. And so if they address those, then the original audience of the writer of the writers of the Bible would not have been able to understand what they were saying. Uh, and that's and, and it's the same thing with history as well. So we have since the Enlightenment, this idea that historiography, the writing of history has to be chronological, it has to be systematized, it has to be organized, it has to be based on a litany of written primary sources. Uh, and that wasn't the way it worked in the ancient world at all. Um, the ancient world was very much an oral tradition kind of world because the majority of people could not read. And so they would get the majority of their information uh, by, via oral tradition, like this, this information about their community would pass down faithfully from one generation to the next and to the next. But the way that the convention of oral tradition worked is a lot different than uh, the way that modern historiographical writing works. And so are the texts that are in the Bible reflect a world that is shaped by oral tradition. Therefore, we shouldn't expect the Bible to be organized historically in the same way that like a modern history textbook would. And I think that's like kind of like philosophically the foundation uh, or like, I guess my foundational argument against inerrancy as it's articulated by modern evangelicals. Uh, does that, does that make sense? I see where you're coming from, I guess. Uh, so if I was to steel man it there, is your concern that inerrancy 
leads some to wanting to basically say that the Bible should be treated as a a a guide to science and that if science contradicts the Bible then either science is wrong or the Bible is wrong and we can see this go two ways we see some people who I guess go well science is wrong and I guess they go like a young earth creationist route or flat earth or whatnot and you know I I don't play that game I I wouldn't consider myself a a fundamentalist of that of that type um and then I guess the the opposite problem would be like people who would maybe question their faith when they go well the bible doesn't reconcile with science so the bible must be wrong and so uh we we worry about their their faith being um challenged especially young people in schools and colleges and stuff who are if they're brought up with a incomplete understanding of what the bible is and are just told that it's always right and they find out like oh well it's not (laughs) then you know or in that way so i I see what you're saying there you know I, i guess you know, this comes down to how you define inerrancy. Yeah, um, no, that's exactly yeah, right. That's exactly, that's exactly right. right. And and I, to me, I've never defined it in, you know, I think the the teachings of the Bible are are true, and I don't think there's a, yeah. I don't think there's contradictions yeah. in the Bible internally or with reality. Now, our ability to understand the Bible is obviously right. limited by our errant minds and and nature and limited nature, and. It all, you know, I think the biggest problem that that we run into here is that I, I don't think the—this is something I think the Catholic Church does a much better job of than the Protestant branches of Christianity do, in, in like, teaching how to view different parts of the Bible and understand the differences in those texts. Like, right. um, you know, things that are written in a poetic nature or in an allegorical nature, things that are written as, you know, in, in letter form or communication— you know how ancient prophecy worked how ancient his you know ancient recordings of history worked um people don't people don't know i mean people have a hard time just like you know read the verse in the context of the chapter let alone understanding like <laughs> right. literary styles and 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 right. of 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 the day and age and you know not even accounting in for differences in, in the hebrew language and and the english language and all that mm-hmm. and then just i just think asking like you know I, I think you touched on this too but like you know what's the point of the bible isn't to be a a science textbook like mm-hmm. you know if god was talking to you know g- giving genesis to moses you know god wasn't going to be like so what you really need to know is that there was this thing called the big bang and there was this infinite expansion from this small point and 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 there was these millions of years where everything was. It's just like not, not that I. I want to be clear. I, I wouldn't say I'm a 100% adherent to, you know, evolution or B- Big Bang. It's like I'm. I'm not. A, I'm not a scientist. I don't really. I haven't studied those things with any great degree. So I would say I'm not like 100% wedded to that either. But just right. You know, if we were going to accept that, if we were just going to, for sake of argument, accept that that is how God created things that he he set the universe in motion and guided the processes of the universe expansion and uh and then evolution and all that to come to us it's like well okay moses and the hebrews don't need to know this they need to know (laughs) the gist of that like i created the heavens and the earth i created everything they see i created them and then they need to know like the fundamental like the creation story needs to speak to 
what is the purpose of humanity? Why are you yes. fallen? Why are you? So it's like, you know, whether people are like, whether the Genesis, you know, narrative is like a literal play by play of something that happened or it's the, this is the good enough, like the gist of the version of events that you need to know to understand your place in the world, your relationship to God. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlay, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc if you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes insomnia brain fog moodiness or weight gain you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging the experts at midi health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause and MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And creation and to your sin and whatnot, like that's that's what needed to be communicated there, not science. <laughs> Right. No. And, and, and that's exactly my point. And that's why I think you and I actually probably agree on this issue. I think it's more, more of a, more of a difference in semantics. Um, because again, like, like I said before, the classical evangelical statement on inerrancy explicitly states, it's like article 12, um, in the statement that the Bible has to be true in the modern sense of truth whenever it deals with anything historical or scientific. And that's the part of the doctrine of inerrancy that I just can't accept okay. because again, their, their thought categories are not the same as ours. Well, that's in the just silly. World. That's like, let's play the game by our enemy's rules. Like what? Like, why would you let, why would you right. let the world define what truth is for you? Like if you're right. going to use, if you're going to, if you're going to say the Bible is true, you need to use a, you know, a biblical definition of true or, or, or you know tr it's true within the, the context of what the bible is 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 speaking to right it, that's absolutely that's absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah no that's so, absolutely correct and there yeah. there's a really good book i think it was written in 1994 by an evangelical scholar named mark knoll and the book is called the scandal of the evangelical mind and unfortunately i i, I looked I, I read this book i don't know like six or seven years ago and i looked him up and i think he's one of those guys that's like now suffering from a case of trump derangement syndrome i think unfortunately he kind of went off <laughs> the deep end in 2016 as as many evangelical leaders did um but anyways that's beside the point this book is still really good but in the scandal of the evangelical mind the thesis of the book is that you have you know the the enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century and it completely reshapes the intellectual landscape of the western world and of course the dominant ideas that come out of the enlightenment are science reason and then that the two of those can bring about progress and so the the thinkers of the enlightenment many of them at least used that new worldview to criticize the institutional churches of of europe in the early modern era and so they mounted this assault on christianity 
humanity based on this new understanding of reason and this new understanding of science. And then, of course, you know, along with reason, this new understanding of history that emerged from the Enlightenment. And the argument that he makes in this book is that the early evangelical movement, which formed at the exact same time as the Enlightenment was taking place, essentially embraced all of the presu- all of the epistemological presuppositions of the Enlightenment. This belief in objective reason, this belief in science, uh, mo- like modern science, and then this belief in history. And they use that to try to fight against the critique of the church that was being mounted by these Enlightenment thinkers. And the problem with this is that these evangelical leaders wound up projecting back into history all of these ideas that did not, all of these ideas and categories that didn't exist until the 16th and 17th century. And so ever since then, according to Mark Knoll, evangelicalism and Protestantism more generally, because Protestantism in America has been influenced by the evangelical movement, you know, whether we want to admit that or not. I went to a Lutheran church, which isn't historically evangelical, but we were very much uh, an evangelical church there. Um, you know, whether we want to accept that or not, like evangelicalism has always had kind of this uh, this this flaw and that it's 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 tried to make the Bible resemble the thought categories of the modern world. And that's the problem with inerrancy, because the evangelical leaders that came up with that doctrine explicitly stated that we had to project these modern categories back into antiquity. And so like a really great example of that, like you brought up before, is in Genesis. I think that if you if you read Genesis historically, obviously the first 11 chapters of Genesis is the prologue to the book of Genesis. And then kind of beyond that, the prologue to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which is one which it's, it's one literary unit. It's one long story. And it's the story of Abraham's family, Israel, making a covenant with God and then God setting up the conditions uh, of whether or not Israel is going to be faithful to that covenant. And so in order to tell that story, which really begins in Genesis 12, verses one and three, when God calls Abraham to be a blessing to the world, you have to have some sort of story that sets that up that would make sense right. to the uh, the um, the recipients of that or the, the hearers of that in the ancient Near East. And so the first 11 chapters of Genesis borrow very heavily from the pagan creation stories of the nations that surround Israel. But you can tell that the author is subtly working with these stories and kind of modifying them to fit his own rhetorical needs. And so if you look at like, you know, Gilgamesh or Atrahasis or some of these other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, there's a flood in every single one of them. There's a story of the creation of human beings. There's a catastrophe, all the kinds of things that we see in Genesis 1 through 11 are there. But what's interesting about Genesis 1 through 11 is exactly as you said before, the writer of Genesis in the first two chapters, you know, God is kind of envisioned as creating this universe as his temple. Human beings are creating his image and likeness to be his priest. And the way that the rhetoric of Genesis 1 and 2 is used, I mean, it, it would, it would, that, that would be what it would symbol or that, that would be what it would signal to the ancient audience. And then 3 through 11 is about how human beings, because of their rebellion, had screwed all of that up. And uh, I listened to the second uh, podcast that you released with your LCI podcast, and you talked about the, uh, Genesis chapter 3 mm-hmm. and how really it's a story about human beings grasping for power. And I think that's absolutely 100% correct. And so it's wrong for us to assume that Genesis 1 through 11 has to be about um, science when it's not. Like in the, and, there's, and it just doesn't give us any scientific information, and that doesn't mean it's not true. And even if Genesis 1 through 11 didn't happen historically, if the writer is just playing with these ancient crea- creation myths to set up the story of Abraham, it still doesn't mean that it's not true. It just, the right. level any, of truth doesn't than, operate. With... Any more than we would say that Jesus's parables, if they were completely made up, are not right. true. It's like, right. well, they're, they're still, the teachings are true. It's just the story is being put in there. 
uh, you know, it could be even a combination of like there's like some of the like maybe there was sort of an Adam and an Eve, but maybe we're not getting the full context or you know the play by right. a lot of stuff people don't realize that even like the gospels aren't exactly a like play by play and a lot of the quotations of Jesus are not like literally someone had a mic and a or, or right. it wasn't mic'd up and recorded or someone was sitting there with a pen and paper and like writing down word for word you know these are recollections made later on and and written down and you know we we trust that God you know, is is wor- God's spirit is working through these writers, and we're getting what we need to get in terms of the things Jesus said. But a- anyway, it, it's I guess it my you know I guess like so the alternative to using the term inerrancy is to use just does that the scriptures are God breathed and, and they're inspired and they're and they're true. The problem is I see a lot of people who use those terms, but then they take these they take that and run with it and just like. You know, well, but they're not inerrant, which means like, okay, so homosexuality isn't a sin, and transgenderism right. isn't a sin, and um, actually, the epistles were written by Paul, and we don't like Paul. He's a big, he's a big needy <laughs> poophead, <laughs> right? And yeah. so, you know, Say, uh, he's a racist, sexist, homophobe. That's yeah. what everyone always <laughs> yeah. says. Yeah, exactly. So about someone uh, who it, came from Asia Minor, of course, you know, a Jew <laughs> from Asia Minor, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, that we 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 get a bunch of that. We get you know like the I'm a red letter Christian, and it's just like, right. and, oh yeah. Uh, so that that's my disdain. It's like as much as I I can see where you're coming from, where you're like, well, some of the people who define in the more modern sense of inerrancy have defined it in in a way and and used it in a way that's bad, and and I can see that. I I, I guess I just see a lot more harm being done when we don't have. You know, if it's not inerrancy, maybe there's a better term. I just think we need, you know, I, I think to be a Christian is to admit these scriptures are inspired. I mean, I think even mm-hmm. the most progressive of progressive Christian sects would have to agree that, like, well, yeah, they're inspired, but like, um, I don't know. I think you, I think you need something that that commits the per, the believer more to the reconciliation of scripture with scripture and to treat all of scripture as being God's word, not just the parts that they like. And, you know, that that's why I've, I've become a defender of the term uh, and the doctrine of inerrancy. Yeah. That doesn't mean that perhaps there, there aren't, you know, I, I could agree that maybe some things that are attached to that need to be trimmed off um, because um, there, there's potential harm or error that's being made there too. Um, I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And again, a, a lot of it really is semantic, and it depends on how you use the term inerrancy. And that's that's been my experience, too, is that like, like well, kind of like you and me, like I'll say that I don't believe in inerrancy, and somebody will ask me um, what I mean by that because they believe in inerrancy, but then it turns out they really kind of believe in the same thing. And I think that a, a better way of phrasing that is I, when I believe that the Bible is the only source of authority. Again, this is what it means for me to be a Protestant, and it's why I call my my podcast, the Protestant Libertarian podcast, because for me, that means that the Bible is the only source of authority that I submit to, even though I'm a subjective human being and my interpretations of the Bible are limited by my social and cultural context. I'm aware of that. The other 
con or the other, I guess, category that I think is really helpful is reliability. So I think that that is a, a maybe a more useful way of thinking mm-hmm. about uh, the Bible because it doesn't have the baggage that um, inerrancy has. I think that the Bible is completely reliable when understood in its proper historical context. And so uh, what I like about authority and reliability is you, you you get, you know, kind of like what you're saying. We, we don't have the option to pick and choose the things that we like in yeah. the Bible based on, you know, kind of our modern tastes. Um, and so and I think that's really important. But then also with reliability, that sets up the idea that what whatever the Bible says and however the Bible says it, we know that that is going to give us access to the truth. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, and with, yeah. without importing all of our modern ideas into the scriptures, which is a, and the, the problem that I, the pro, I mean, again, the biggest problem that I have with that, and this is kind of the problem that I have with like church traditions and creeds and all of those kinds of things in general, is that we often say that like our traditions and our creeds are derived from the scripture. Therefore, when we recite a creed, we are being faithful to the scriptures. But in reality, a lot of the times our creeds and our confessions are interpretive lenses through which we view the scriptures. And so we wind up actually subverting the authority of scripture to the creed or the statement of faith that we claimed was derived from the scripture. And so the way that I look at it is that the Bible should always be the yardstick by which we measure whether a statement of faith or whether a doctrine is true. And we should always be open. And again, I I think churches uh, and denominations in particular, we need to have statements of faith. I think that those boundaries and definitions are helpful because it allows people to know, like, you know, if you come to this church, these are the kinds of things that we believe here. And that's, that's helpful. Um, But we should always keep those open to criticism if we feel like uh, as, as, you know, as we feel like our growing understanding of the scripture kind of changes the way that we approach those doctrines. Does that that make sense? Yeah, I can kind of, I feel like, you know, I think the utility of inerrancy is that it's one word, but I could see the potential argument in replacing it with the pairing of authoritative and reliable. Um, Cause I think that kind of drives home the, the ideas that I, that I, that I want to cling to that I think just inspiration alone doesn't, doesn't get. So or maybe, maybe it's a, maybe it's a trifecta, you know, to, to mirror the Trinity. You need, you need right. inspired, you need reliable and authoritative. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, and, 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 yeah, and, and I, yeah, I'd be really happy. That might that. be, that might be, Although it's 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 maybe not as like you know simple as just saying oh they're an errant, but you know maybe it's just more accurate to spell it out in those three ways rather than just to claim claim well the scriptures are are an errant and then having to make a bunch of clarifications about what that means. So I I can see your point. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I and I really do think I mean, this is just a bigger this is just a bigger problem with language like language is, I think, the greatest tool that human beings have, have ever invented, except for maybe farming. But language is it's it's not it's not perfect. And words yeah. change their meaning over time. And just because, you know, really all that language is, is a system of signs, right? There, there are signs that point to reference in the real world. The problem is that I verbalize a sign and I have a particular referent in my head. Yeah. You hear the you hear the sign that I am verbalizing to you, but you have a different referent in your head, and that's where a lot of that's where right. a lot of misunderstandings come into. We you know, and I think there, especially especially in theological debates, uh, a lot of the times I feel like people talk in political debates too. I feel like people talk past each other when they yes. actually agree on you know they actually agree like. You know the the ideas that they're having in their head are the same. They're just using different words to express it, and that's why they're disagreeing. You know, and I think I oh, think that that yeah. leads to a that lot happens. of problems in human that communication. Ha- that happens all the time. I think it happens within. I, I even sometimes think theological disputes 
within Christianity are silly because I feel like a lot of times people are describing the same thing just from different perspectives. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I'm more of a reformed uh, background, you know, so I, my soteriology resembles that more of a Calvinist than an Arminian. But I don't have this, like, A, I, I'm not like a you know, five point confessional dogmatic <laughs> Calvinist, you know what I mean? Right. Like that's just not my style because I, like you said, I don't want to be caught up in a creed or a tradition where now I'm reading the Bible through that lens. It's like, cause I, I think that can be dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. even though that's that now I can find when people, if someone reads me the Westminster confession or reads or, or goes through like, you know, RC Sproul and systematic theology, a lot of it's going to like, you know, resonate with me because I think yeah. it's it, it resonates with what I, I see in Scripture. But again, it's just about wanting to put Scripture first, not even creeds that I, I'm, I'm favorable towards. But I don't have this, I don't know, need to debate with like Arminians and, and non-Calvinists because sometimes I feel like it's not that their theology is wrong. I just feel like we're describing the same things, but like from different... Uh, universal perspectives. Like, I think the Calvinist is describing things more from the perspective of God's sovereignty, and the Arminian is describing things more from the position of the human experience. And to me, it's like, well, those are both true. Like, the mystery of God and his goodness and his and His sovereignty is that I think God is sovereign, and yet we make every choice as a agent with freedom and will, right. and we experience God's sovereign decree and plan in this unique, beautiful, personal way, because that's what God wants. And so it's like, the, the and then I'll see people arguing over theology, and it'll just be like, you know, what, what, what are we doing? Like, society's crumbling and burning around us. Right. Like, Jesus didn't say that, you know, the those who cling to the correct theology have, right. have, have done it unto me. He said, no, those who have... Uh, you know, fed the poor and 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 clothed the the orphan and 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 cared for the widow. You know that what you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. You know, like right. you're supposed to be going out there and and spreading the gospel and being salt and light. And meanwhile, we're too busy, you know, breaking off into the you know two gajillion thousands, you know, Protestant denomination. And, and I mean, I I remember as a as a kid, and this is partly what shaped. Um, colored my church experience in a negative way i ended up i think by the time i was like 15 in a church that was a a split off from a split off from a split off (laughs) like it it, it was wild like we went from a church of like like 500 people to like there's like 10 of us yeah but like we're the only ones that are right i was like this this is silly guys right (laughs) yeah and then Oh, I mean, yeah, but then, and then, like, all right, at the end of the day, it's like, okay, you're right. Uh, okay, so what is what is that? It's like you're saying. So what is what does that what does that do? Okay, so right. if someone's if someone's ever able to figure it all out, okay, that's great. What what are you going to do with that? Then, what, you, what did you, you know? do for the kingdom? She, she right. Like, what did you do for the kingdom? It's like I started a church of five people, and we had the most correct theology. It's like right. he's like, well, I'm going to challenge you on that because. Your theology couldn't have been the most correct because you did absolutely nothing I told you to do. Right. <laughs> and yeah. that, that's what that's what matters, right? Like it, if truth if true if your theology doesn't actually like get your your I mean, we're sitting down in chairs right now because we're talking on a podcast, and I think that's a form of action and I think it's good. But at yeah. some point if you don't get up and, and actually go do the gospel, you know what I mean? Like go and, and, and spread the gospel and, and try to live it out, 
that you're kind of missing the point. And and I think that's that's that that's a major problem. You know, and I think you know, it, it's it's a problem within you know, it's sort of a reflection that I see within libertarian circles too cuz you see libertarians do the same thing that Protestants do where it's like this endless infighting into like who is the most libertarian, who's got the most correct whether it's political theory or who's got the best strategy for the libertarian party and and all this stuff and i'm just like man we if if we put all the energy we put into fighting each other <laughs> into just like doing what we're supposed to do man imagine how much further we'd be right yeah <laughs> like you know if we were actually out there presenting libertarian ideas instead of just you know uh, either you know the mises people attacking the reason people and then the reason people attacking people attack, the mises yeah, people yeah. right yeah you know what i'm saying like it's just, it just it doesn't seem like it's very productive and this is one of the things too i mean you're, you're right like this this is exactly what like what james says in james chapter two faith without works is dead like it, yes. and, and and he connects that to serving the poor and the orphan and it's so like it's 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 important that we actually do something with this and one of the one of the problems that i have I think I think the, obviously my degrees in biblical studies, so I think that studying the Bible and I think that theology are of the utmost importance, and I think it's great for us as Christians to have these conversations and these debates. But I think the problem with theology, at least in the Western world, is that there's this sense that we could somehow someday figure everything out, like we as limited intellectually limited human beings could somehow figure out God. And I just don't think that that makes a whole lot of sense. And really, like all that theology is in a lot of ways is an attempt to reduce God to human language. And when you have the assumption that you can write this 800 page systematic theology and never have to ask any more questions and never have to answer any more questions about God, to me, that almost feels like a little blasphemous. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, like, like it, it, feel, it feels like it feels yeah. like we we can capture the essence of something that is completely inexpressible. I mean, but all even of then, the language they never and, do like every systematic no, they, theology no. always like everyone has their thing where they go, well, that's a mystery. Like with right. the Calvinist, it's like, well, how is God sovereign but not evil for making us all do these things? It's like, well, right, it's a mystery. And then, and then, but then with the Catholics, it's like, um, I'm trying to think of a good one for the Catholics. Transubstantiation would be a yeah, good one. There for we them, go. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, well, we don't know. It's just a mystery. And right. you know, and with Lutherans, it's like, well, how does how does baptism, you know, work in the way that you think it does? It's just like. You know, it's just it's like, you know what? It's like at some point um, we have to simplify it down to bare bones. And I think that and this is this is the part of my theological development that that I really attribute to Jordan Peterson, which is like at some point it needs to be less about what you you know, like, and like you said in James chapter two, faith without works is dead. Like at some point, if it doesn't translate to action, then it, it's it's useless to me. And if it's useless, it has to be wrong. Like anything that just anything that that renders you useless in the world and not going out there and actually shining the light of Christ or uh, to the world or trying to make the world more free is it. it there's no point to it. It it, it renders you, it, if it renders you completely useless, then there's something. Uh, it reminds me of um the. You ever watch? I, I'm a big Jordan Peterson junkie. I don't know if you've watched much of his stuff, but <laughs> but uh, Jordan Peterson did a debate with Sam Harris years ago, and they had this argument over what the definition of truth was, and um Peterson's definition of truth to many seemed bizarre at the time because he said 
if you, you know, were studying nuclear physics, and in your studying of nuclear physics, your studies and actions led to the destruction of the entire world, then maybe on the level of scientific analysis of the the nuclear, you know, the 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 atom and the nucleus of the atom and and splitting that and all that, you were correct, but in a grander sense, you weren't actually engaging in the truth. Right. And and, and, and so, like, there, there's something about truth that isn't just about, like, and, and so this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about, like, are we going by the world's definition of truth or, or, the, or the Bible's definition of truth? And I think a, a biblical definition of truth isn't just, like, you know, what that which scientifically comports to reality and is verifiable through hypothesis and tests and, and, and repeatable over time. Like that's a very, you know, post enlightenment, uh, modern conception of truth. But truth is, I think it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's about, you know, that, which, that, which not just sustains life, but that, 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 which is flourishing, I think to life. Um, and, and, you know, and then you could equate this to praxeology like that, that, which, that which uh, leads you to action and your actions are actually coming to the results that you want. You know, that's how you know you're operating within the realm of truth, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that, too. And again, like the world should look to us and see the gospel in the way that we live our lives. Like we should be modeling the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus through the way that we treat other people. And I also think like to your point, it's just a fact that people don't become Christians because they're blown away by intellectual arguments. They don't. They become Christians because they're friends with people that live it out in their life. That's the reason why people accept faith in Christ. And then they and then obviously, you know, their relationship with the Bible, like the, it's the intellectual component deepens and strengthens your faith and keeps you rooted but people come to faith because they see people actually living it out like that's the thing that really changes the world it's christians that are out there proclaiming the gospel not just in words but through the way that they live and yeah like what jesus says in the sermon on the mount like your righteousness needs to surpass that of the pharisees and the scribes it's not good enough to just talk about it you actually have to go out there and do something uh, along with that as well and so if we just sit in our churches all day and fight one another and argue about doctrines and you know there there are churches that split over the dumbest doctrinal arguments. You know, if we just spend all of our time fighting and arguing about that stuff, then we can't actually go out there and make a difference in the world and build the kingdom of God. And then our witness is, is worthless anyways. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people are turned off. Um, I think a lot of people are turned off to Christianity by seeing the way that we as Christians treat one another, you know? Yeah. No, hundred percent. And it applies to the, the Liberty movement too. It's just yeah. like if people are like, Hey, these people are always fighting each other and just talking philosophy and no one's getting any more free than how much about Liberty do you really care about? <laughs> and right. And it's like now, and, and now like I'm a big Mises caucus guy and I, I believe in their strategy. Be and what drew me to them was that it was initially about getting the work done. And I still think there's a lot of that at play but then there's also a lot in the sort of like reactionary to them taking over the party and all that, that um, it ha there is an element to it now, which I'm not a big fan of, which is this just like, you know, we have to go after the, yeah, whether it's the Reason Magazine types or the, or the, you know, the, the Prags or the Blue Pill types or whatever. And it's like, now, now listen, if they're, you know, if the argument is about 
something of substance, right? Like about like what should our next action be, or you know how should we best utilize these resources? You know who should the presidential like that? That's good. Like I think those are those are you know arguments and things that need to be had. Mm-hmm. But but when the fighting is just about like you know oh well. Uh, Dave Smith isn't a libertarian because he's not for a complete open borders, or if it's towards like a reason type, where it's like, uh, um, I don't know, uh, trying to think of a of a of a of a reasoned or prag type, or um, they don't want to abolish every aspect of the state. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. they're it's okay like, with there being a DMV. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. So this is a good example. Um, th- there was this big push by some people all back to be like, you know classical liberals aren't libertarians and i was like well i mean maybe some of them aren't but a lot of them are like a lot of them heavily overlap into you know a more minarchist uh you know tradition of of libertarianism and it's like i mean if we're are we just going to define libertarians as anarchists because then like why do we just rename the party the anarchist party like no like there's it's always been anarchists and minarchists and there are plenty of classical liberals that you know, I would consider, you know, within the umbrella of, of libertarian and, you know, they it's like good grief. If, if if you wouldn't like jump up and down for joy for a government that only did the roads and a small defense military and, right. you know, minimal infrastructure and, and courts like <laughs> yeah. then you're just making perfect the enemy of the good. And, right. you know, then people look at the libertarian party and you're like wow, all these people are fighting each other and like he's not a real libertarian because he doesn't want to open the borders and he's not a real libertarian because he doesn't want to ban driver's licenses. It's like people are just going to like check out be like this is a joke. <laughs> right. Well, and, and I think I think this goes back exactly to the what we were talking about with the Bible and theology earlier. You know, it's all about these labels and people understand these labels differently. And so, you know, again, it's like it's like if you're if you're reformed and you're like, well, some other guy has, uh, you know, a slightly different take on, you know, tulip than I do. So he's not really reformed. And only people that believe me, it, it's 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 the same exact thing. It, it, we get to a point where all we're doing is wrangling over words and we wind up alienating people that actually share like 95 percent of we- our values values what really gets me is the hyper calvinists who don't realize that they have engaged in a works-based theology because what they think saves is right theology they're like if you're not a five like like the only true christians are the five point calvinists and if your theology isn't right then you're not actually worshiping jesus so you're not actually saved it's like so what you're saying is correct theology saves you which is a work works-based theology which is the supposed to be anathema to calvinism so right it's like uh, I stopped listening to them a long time ago, and you know, again, kind of, I, I I appreciate that soteri- soteriology and and some of the systematic theology there, but again, like I can also uh, listen to a Catholic like like Bishop Barron or or, or other you know uh, Catholic libertarians I know and and have a conversation with them and and hear Catholic teachings and stuff that I. I think are beautiful. Like I think Catholics are way yeah. more willing to dive into philosophy and um and, and sort of trying to connect that sort of like you know Aristilian um you know it's like you know like philosoph uh, what, what's the word here like a first principles philosophical exercise and connect that to the Bible. Yeah. And like I've noticed that like calvinists aren't a big fan of that i'm just like why like it's so it's just like everyone gets caught up into these weird 
like you said, these the, these weird groups, these weird, these weird subcultures, and it's you know that, that's a, that's a that's a failure of, of Protestantism and libertarianism, unfortunately. But yeah. you know, hopefully, that's something that uh, you know, as both of us as as Protestant libertarians, we can hopefully uh, I don't know, car- carve out a path out of that. Or help to at least, or point people in a better, you know, at least at least be examples of not having to do that. <laughs> right, and and I really do think that if again you take Genesis one twenty six and one twenty seven seriously, that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. I think that that helps to like if you approach everybody with that mentality, then that helps break down some of those walls. And I think we start to realize that like we we actually have a lot more in common with people than we realize if we talk to them, and even people that come from different political or theological perspectives, like. I don't know. We're all human beings. And I think that there is, there's a lot to be said for just respecting other people and trying to meet them where they're at and hear them out and listen to what they have to say. Uh, we had a, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm also a part of the Libertarian Party too, and I'm definitely Mises Caucus, you know, uh, Libertarian Party, King County, Kentucky. It's a lot of, a lot of Mises Caucus people there, but we had kind of like a, like a, like a, I don't know. There were a bunch of different counties that got together and did like one kind of like libertarian hangout at this bar. And uh, there was this, there was this Catholic there and him and I started talking and we wound up sitting down at the bar and talking theology for two hours. And it was just an incredible conversation. And we didn't, we weren't mad at each other. You know, we didn't insult each other. It was just, we were just sharing our perspective, sharing our opinions. We disagreed about a lot of stuff. We also agreed a lot about a lot of things too. And it was a really productive conversation. And I think that, and this is one of the reasons why I like libertarianism so much as a social philosophy because it allows us to remove um, force and violence from kind of social, um, I guess, from, you know, social interactions. So one of the great things about that is that we can live in a society where we accept the fact that people want to live differently than us and think differently than us, but we respect their right to do that. Um, And we create systems where everyone can express themselves freely. And I think that that's a really positive, I think that's a really positive vision of society and one that allows us to be empathetic and compassionate and open-minded when it comes to the beliefs of other people. And I think, I think you can only get that socially with libertarianism, which is why I think libertarianism um, works so well with, with Christian theology. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I just, I feel like there's that, that, that's, that's the big connection to bring this all full circle. (laughs) I agree. And and the other thing that I've been kind of thinking about lately, and I'm, I'm, uh, before we go, I guess like the last, last idea I want to throw at you here. um, I kind of feel like, one of the observations I've made, which I think is one of the best arguments for why Christians should be libertarians or, or promote libertarianism is because I kind of feel like true uh, evangelism can only happen in a libertarian uh, framework. Because if the minute we add coercion into it, one, we're not being Christ-like, but two, like, how do you do effective evangelism in a in a, you know— a culture where people are are seeing Christ through the lens of 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 the sword and and being forced upon them through, you know, you know, one way or another, it, it just it just doesn't work. And, and to me, it's like it's, it, I mean, that's it. It just it it doesn't work, and it isn't what Christ taught. And it's like if if Christ came, and instead of being the Messiah the Jews wanted him to be, which was the fully armored up you know messiah who was going to come and take a, take down the roman empire and you know basically take all over, take over the world and bring everyone to peace and everyone was going to you know come and bow down to israel and 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 worship god because because of the great mighty conquering you know like uh 
peace-bringing Messiah. Well, the Jews rejected Jesus because he didn't do that. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, and he showed uh, the exact opposite example. He showed, like, I'm going to go and be a servant to all. I'm going to, you know, the first shall be, if you want to be first among everyone, you have to be last. And it's like, so, okay, so he did all that, but what he really wants us to do is we're supposed to take over the state and rain (laughs) Christianity down upon everybody, even though, like, that's what the Jews wanted him to do with, 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 it's like, it's just people don't, realize how much they're missing it and i just think you know what like if we actually care about people's hearts and their souls and we want to reach them we have to do it as christ did and i'm not saying like obviously you can do true evangelism within a authoritarian regime and stuff like that but you really can't do if it's like your evangelism is going to sound hollow if on one hand you're saying hey listen to me talk to you about about the good news of the gospel while there's another guy in the same room pointing a gun at you saying, like, you know, hey, listen to the gospel. Like, right. th- that just doesn't work. People are, are going to have their hearts hardened to the to the message. Yeah, and I've, I've always thought that censorship is only pursued by people that are not completely confident in their beliefs. Because if you are if you are confident that what you believe is true, then you don't need to censor anybody because your ideas are going to win out in the marketplace of ideas every time. And I think this is one of the reasons why, again, like with the military industrial complex or with all other aspects of government, there is an attempt to censor the information and there is an attempt to not present all of the data to the population because they know that the they know that the um, the narratives that they're spinning are not completely true. And I think that when people are when people are afraid that they might be wrong, then they're afraid of being challenged. And so, and this is one of the reasons why I think people kind of section themselves off from others and they don't want to engage with those that have different ideas than them because they're worried that they might encounter arguments that they can't refute and they might be forced to change their mind. But like, I am confident that the gospel is accurate and that it is the greatest story ever told and that it can compete with any other idea in the marketplace of ideas. So let's open up society. Let's have debates and conversations about all of these things. And I'm very confident that the gospel is going to went out. I am. And so we, we don't need yeah. to censor anybody. We don't need to shut down in, in, any sort of uh, dissident information. We don't need to protect our kids from learning ideas that aren't consistent. Like, and, and again, too, this has been one of the things that I've tried to promote with my podcast. I think that we both as Christians and as libertarians need to read and listen to thinkers and authors that don't have our beliefs because it helps us to better understand where they're coming from and refine not only our own ideas, but our approach to people that don't share our ideas. And so I I think that there's nothing but good that comes from that. And the idea that we have to censor and that we have to cut off people from information because we're worried that it might change their mind means that our arguments aren't that great. We need to come up with better ones. (laughs) Yeah. Or that we need to like, you know, you know, we, we, we have to use the state to stop people from, uh, you know, having their gay marriages or from doing gender. Now now it's different. Like I'm not saying, I will make a caveat. I'm not exactly against the state stopping trans uh, transition surgery for minors, um, right, for but um, you know that that's a bit different. <laughs> it's like um, I'm not going to make the perfect the enemy of the good there, but I, it's an overstep to have the state tell adults what they can do with right. their bodies um, and their doctors and things things like that. It's like um, or to you know same with the war on drugs. Same with. Um, anything really it's just like when we go to the state and lobby to them to push these things down upon people um yeah i mean i think i I think we're not 
I think I think what you're saying definitely has an element of, of truth to it as well. In that, like, if you're really confident in in the truth of the gospel and in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, I don't think you you have the temptation to to pull the sword out on people. Yeah, uh, you know what I mean. And and if you do, and and you go and you coerce people to try to make that society happen, I think. I mean, I, I kind of lost my train of thought, but I, I think I think the issue that we we run into there is that we end up, in a way, doing exactly what Jesus warned us against, and we're taking his name in vain. And we're saying we did all these works for him, right? Like, we're saying, like, well, no, we, we wielded the, you know, it's, uh, using the Lord of Rings analogy here, like, we wielded the ring of power to, to, to try to fight Sauron. We tried to do it to... To do good, but it's like we, you know, you d- depart from me. <laughs> you didn't know me. You didn't do these, you know, if anything, you blasphemed my name because you did things that were contrary to what I did and contrary to what I taught. And right. and so it, it's, it's like no wonder. And then it's like people wonder why our culture is getting so secular. And to go full circle on this, people will blame Protestantism. And I think maybe Protestantism does share some of that blame but what equally shares a lot of that blame is just christians just not doing a good job at representing christ and the church falling away all the church because like listen it's not like the catholic church is not full of lots of you know problems in terms of trying to appeal to the world and trying to you know and not always doing a good job at standing on the truth of the bible or the truth of the gospel and I think in a lot of ways the church right now is kind of like ancient Israel who fell away yeah. into idolatry and disobedience, and we're not having a physical invasion of a foreign nation upon us, but we're having a cultural invasion of sort of a secular beast that's kind of of our own creation in a way. Yeah, and yeah, and, it, and that's and and we're going to. F- kind of fall under this persecution but i think god's going to use it to call the church back to him and and we hopefully will do that (laughs) yeah and i i mean i think to to your point you're 100 correct and i think this is why like constantinianism and christendom is completely antithetical to christian faith we forget that like we worship a crucified messiah yeah i think that 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 is that is like the fundamental and like again for paul like what he says in first corinthians 2 that i i I came before you and knew nothing except for jesus christ and him crucified like that is the center of our faith not that the messiah acted like the kings of the world where he wielded worldly power but he was willing to embrace a sacrificial death for all of us and then it was through that death that he was able to be exalted in resurrection and then ultimately ascended to the throne of god my my absolute favorite passage i think maybe in the entire Bible is Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where Paul says, like, have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became a Mm -hmm. slave and then emptied himself in humble obedience to death on a cross. And that it was through that that God highly exalted him so that all, you know, all nations will bow before him. And again, the, the fact that like, 
that, that that's like there, there's a really great New Testament scholar named Michael Gorman who wrote a book on this called Cruciformity, best book on Christian ethics I ever read. But his point is that like that is the center of Pauline ethics right there. It's we have the attitude of Christ who, although he had all of this power at his disposal, willingly gave it up to sacrifice. And it was it was through that sacrificial mentality, through that that cruciformity that Christ was exalted. And that was what, you know, validated his messianic status. And so for me, we can't claim to worship a crucified and risen Messiah if we are trying to wield power against other. It just doesn't work that way. And again, like it's it's a it's a terrible representation of the gospel because the gospel is about power, but it's about the power to sacrifice for those that have sinned against you, you know. Not, not yeah. uh, you know, and I and I just I think that we as a church have completely lost sight of that. We care about worldly power, and we care about authority, and we care about those kinds of things. When in reality, we're called to be like the crucified Messiah. Couldn't say it better myself, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on. I think this was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, um, I I, uh, I I pre I think we I, I learned a little bit um, going into the topic of inerrancy there. Um, so I'm going to go reflect on that think how i want to go about that subject going forward and then yeah just really good edifying conversation on on the state of the church the state of libertarianism and just the path forward and you know that that uh that is definitely something that i i share a conviction in and, and i think that uh the path forward to me is 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 clear it's 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 go out there and uh you know go go wash people's feet like jesus washed his apostles feet just be be a servant and be be light and salt to people wherever you can and um yeah build build those relationships and you know you're we we don't change the world by wielding the sword and and some kind of like great demonstration of power it's just like one person at a time just you know being being christ-like and and when we're and when we're persecuted, we have to respond just like Jesus did when he was persecuted. And I think you have it exactly right. We we have to we have to be crucified with Christ, you know. And that has to be that. You know, I think a lot of a lot of it. Just the, my closing thought here is that I think a lot of Christians don't really understand or embrace that we are in this world, but not of it. And this this isn't our true home. Like you know, if Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of his world," and we're part of that, then then that's our kingdom. Here is that this is the mission field, and, and and you know we're supposed to be fishing for souls and 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 trying to point people towards the source of light and the source of hope in 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 this life and in the next. So um, I appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, it was a great conversation. Where can people find you uh, for, in terms of your podcast and social media if they want to if they want to go check your stuff out? Yeah, well, thank you again. I really appreciate you having me on the show. This has been an incredible conversation. It's great to get to know you. And I definitely want to have you on my show sometime. I have so many questions about your backstory. Uh, so we'll have to we'll have to have to have a, like a tell all one day. Um, but people can find me. Oh, my podcast is available on every podcast site that's out there. Um, I'm not on YouTube because I like to say things about COVID. And I don't want to get in trouble for it. Um, and so that's uh, that's that's uh, why I'm not on in YouTube. I trouble once about COVID. What I get in trouble for is disinformation about the 2020 election still which is, i <laughs> barely even talk about it's like I, right. I think what happened is i make a joke and then youtube is like flags it it's just ugh. anyway sorry i, yeah, I got a little that, angry there it's like i've oh, talked no, about covid I, and the vaccine all day long they left me alone on that but then i've gotten two strikes over election and and the one was so literally they, they told me the line 
I said, I, I said Republicans think the election was stolen. Like, how that? How's that even so, misinformation? Right, that's that's true. That's just that's just a statement of truth. Uh, you're breaking yeah. up a little bit there. Oh, so, sorry about yeah. that. Um, but yeah. So anyway, so anyways, but yeah. Anyway, no, that's, that's why I avoid YouTube because they they arbitrarily punish people they don't like. Um, but anyway, so you, you can find my podcast on any of the yep. the podcast platforms: Apple, um, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, all of that stuff. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Pro Liberty Pod. I'm new to social media. I I like was not on Twitter before like five months ago. Um, but I try to keep it positive and I try to post stuff on a regular basis. It's a lot of fun. And I mean that's how you and I met. And so it's been a great place yeah. to network. So at Pro Liberty Pod, if you want. Uh, check me out on Twitter. Cool, man. All right. Well, thanks for coming on again. Thanks, everybody who uh, watched in the live stream and uh, interact. I, I didn't read comments this time because it wasn't that kind of show, but a lot of people were commenting and having fun in the comments. So including my, my one Catholic friend, James, who uh, <laughs> came by and said, <laughs> he's like, not my favorite topic in the world, but wanted to step by and say hi. But uh, um, appreciate that. But yeah, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, like I said, don't know how often this show is going to air, probably like once or twice a month at most. I'll try my best, but I appreciate you guys tuning in when I do show up. But, uh, yep, until next time, as always, remember, don't fear the fire. <laughs> Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program.